Hello, and welcome back to the Too Much Lime podcast. I'm Maddie, and Julia is not here today because she is going through a little bit of a flare, but we are so excited to have Dr. Timothy Salati of the Global Lime Alliance. He is the Chief Scientific Officer, and we are really excited to have him here to give us more information about GLA's research efforts. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So our first question, just for anybody who doesn't know exactly what a chief scientific officer does, what role does that play in the overall structure of the Global Lyme Alliance? Okay. So a chief scientific officer, or CSO for short, of a funding organization like GLA is responsible for developing a strategic vision for the types of research we should support. And supporting specific areas of research will help GLA to achieve its mission, which is to conquer Lyme and other tick-borne diseases by discovering uh, and developing new prevention measures, more accurate diagnostic tests, and most importantly, alternative treatment options for patients where antibiotics have failed to cure them. That's awesome. So for you... On a day-to-day, who are you interacting with? Are you interacting more inside the organization or outside with doctors? And Really a combination. So along with myself, a PhD research scientist, I also work very closely with Dr. Mela Tsu, who is also a PhD research scientist. She is our director of research and science. Okay. And together we interface with our colleagues outside the organization that is research scientists, physicians, patients, and other nonprofit organizations that operate in the Lyme disease and tick-borne disease space as well. Interesting. Okay. That was actually a question that I had for you about. Um, I'll ask you a little bit further on just about how your research coincides with other organizations, but I think Julia and I have always talked about, you know, the more the merrier when it comes to tick-borne disease a lot of the time because there aren't always great options. So the more we can get everybody working together, the faster we'll get to those solutions. Absolutely. Um, So our next question is, you know, what areas of research are GLA and its donors most interested in supporting? I know there are obviously huge facets of between, you know, co-infections and testing and things like there. It's such a broad topic to be able to go into. Do you guys focus on anything specific or is it more a time and place situation? Sort of a combination. So GLA really prides itself on listening to and learning from the patient's journey. And every patient's journey is different. And Mm -hmm. also listening to how their physicians help them achieve a better quality of life. So we take what we learn from listening to patients and physicians, and we then rely upon our own scientific expertise and intuition to decide what areas of research we should focus on. So right now, donors are supporting research on co-infections like babesiosis and bartonellosis. We also support the Pediatric Lyme Network that was started by Dr. Lise Negrovic at Boston Children's Hospital. And that's really important because the PD Lyme Net is really helping us better understand Lyme disease and improve treatment outcomes for the youngest patients that are affected by Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. 
We also provide support and share our expertise and, um, you know, resources with research scientists that are developing novel tick repellents, better diagnostic tests, and innovative treatment options such as ozone therapy. And then finally, we really support research to better understand the connections between tick-borne diseases and neuropsychiatric disorders like PAMs, POTS, depression, and suicidality. So we really uh, span the gamut of areas of research that we think will most immediately impact patients' lives. That's so interesting, um, especially about the neuropsychiatric disorders at the end, because that was something, those were the first um, issues that were brought up for me because they were the most pressing, I think, when you have a young child with, you know, I was probably eight or nine when I started developing, you know, a PANS-like syndrome. And it was, that's more overwhelming than, you know, that I'm tired and I have a headache and, you know, it's so those got pushed to the side, but it wasn't for a really long time that I was able to connect those types of issues to Lyme disease and its tick-borne and other infections and stuff until I went to a doctor who originally started off as a psychiatrist and then saw some of the inner connections that were, you know, brought about with those. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I think this is part of the problem. And so I think, but just it's so much is misunderstood or just not understood enough about with, you know, and about PANS, POTS, depression, suicidality, things like that in connection, I think it can be frustrating to try and navigate that is something that I've found. And so I've, I have a lot of hope that you guys are doing great things with that because I think that's a big, it's a big part that's not talked about as much as, you know, in the Lyme community that maybe just because we don't have enough information on it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, you know, if you ask me what is one of the research projects, uh, whose findings have just been published that I'm most proud of. It is work that GLA funded through Columbia University and Copenhagen uh, Hospital in Denmark. And what they did was they studied hundreds of thousands of Danish citizens that were diagnosed with Lyme disease and looked specifically at neuropsychiatric conditions like depression and suicidality, and they found a very strong connection with a cause and effect relationship between Lyme disease and depression and suicidality. So it really lends uh, a large body of clinical evidence to support those connections. So when physicians see patients, particularly younger patients uh, that are suffering from depression and suicidality. They really do have to consider Lyme disease as a potential cause for that condition. Mm -hmm. And I think something that uh, one of a doctor that I had talked to and was more versed, understood a little bit more about the psychiatric causes of it, you know, talked about sudden onsets of issues like that, considering, you know, Lyme disease, you're, you're okay one day and then you're normally sick the next type of situation. And a lot of times, and it happened in, and I'm not going to speak for everyone, but it happened in my experience of 
I was totally fine one day and the next day I woke up and I couldn't stop touching things and, you know, doing weird tick-like behaviors and, you know, had a a lot of depression that didn't correspond. And so um, it's interesting to see similar to the physical symptoms of, oh, I woke up one day and I had this migraine and and this sore throat that wouldn't go away and all of those things, you know, kind of the correlation between that. I'm so excited. I'm actually going to go, we'll link um, a lot of the studies that we talk about today in the show notes for anybody who wants to go through and read some of them um, on your own time, just so if if you're really interested, I'm super interested in in that study and would love to read it. So I'll probably do that as soon as I get off this call with you, but um, we will put them all in the show notes for everyone so that if anybody is a nerd like Julia and I and loves to get a little bit more in depth with it, you're feel free to. Um, But our next question kind of goes along that same line of what are the most important discoveries? And so um, other than the one you just talked about, what other, you know, groundbreaking and most influential studies has GLA funded over the past, you know, decade or so? So there are really many discoveries that GLA has supported over the past 20 years uh, and its earlier parent organizations, but there are four that really rise to the top of my mind. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the first ones that I became aware of when I joined Global Lyme Alliance uh, back in 2017 was John Alcott's SLICE studies at Johns Hopkins University. And really the goal of those clinical studies was to examine the risk factors, the symptom severity, and biomarkers of disease that develop in Lyme patients over a long period of time. He's now been conducting these studies over a period of a few decades. So these studies have really helped define post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, or PTLDS. And this is a syndrome where patients continue to suffer from a variety of symptoms for more than six months, despite having been diagnosed and treated with antibiotics early during the course of their illness. So these are patients where the antibiotic treatment is insufficient to get them better. And we need to better understand why these patients develop PTLDS, and more importantly, how can we help them when antibiotics don't? Interesting. The next, yeah, and the next, the next one is sort of interrelated to this PTLDS issue. Um, the other really important discovery that GLA-funded scientists made is that the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, Borrelia burgdorferi has the ability to resist killing from certain antibiotics like doxycycline. So it turns out doxycycline is not extremely effective or certainly not 100% effective at killing and clearing the spirochetes. So doctors Kim Lewis at Northeastern University and Ying Zhang at Johns Hopkins University were able to independently demonstrate that spirochetes are tolerant of doxycycline, but importantly, they can be killed by other antibiotics or combinations of antibiotics and some herbal essential oils as well. So the reason that's important is it points us in directions other than the standard of care doxycycline to try and treat these patients with PTLDS. Interesting. So when you talk about PTLDS, are you only referring to those who caught Lyme early, 
or does it also include those who, you know, for my experience, I was probably 10 years into being sick before they figured it out? Right. So that's a really difficult uh, question to answer. Um, by the clinical definition of PTLDS, these are patients that were diagnosed early, treated early, and as many as 10 to 20% of patients that are treated with antibiotics will fail to respond favorably to those antibiotics. So they have persistent long-term symptoms associated with having had Lyme disease at some point in time. So there's sort of a distinction between PTLDS patients and what we might call chronic Lyme disease patients, in part because when you're looking at the chronic Lyme disease patient population, it's kind of hard to decide exactly what defines that population clinically. And if you can't clearly define the population, it's difficult to tell who's in that population and who isn't. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So I think yeah, I feel like that's a big, that's, it's a big task, but something that I'm sure a lot of people are looking to understand because of the inaccuracies of testing and stuff, just how many people end up, you know, years down the line waiting. And, and at that point, things look a lot different than they did, you know, if, if you had caught it early and, and things like that. Absolutely. And that's not just the case with Lyme disease any infectious disease, whether it's bacterial or viral or fungal, the longer you leave that pathogen in the patient's body to cause damage, the more difficult it is to treat that patient, to cure that patient, to prevent that patient from developing chronic conditions that could potentially last the rest of their lives. That's interesting. No, thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate it. It's mm -hmm. something that I, I didn't personally know, so it was right. it was good to kind of get that distinction between the two. Right. The third major discovery is one that was made by Nicole Baumgarth at the University of California, Davis. And she actually used a mouse model of Lyme disease to discover why people may contract Lyme disease over and over again despite the fact that they produce antibodies against B. burgdorferi, that bacteria that causes Lyme. So even though most people can produce antibodies during an infection, that infection also has to stimulate what we call a memory response. And a memory response is what protects us from reinfection by mounting an antibody defense faster and more effective than the first time around. So that's how you can be protected mm -hmm. from subsequent reinfection. Now, unfortunately, the spirochetes that cause Lyme disease have figured out how to prevent mice and perhaps people from developing a strong memory response. That's very interesting. I think memory responses, you think like chicken pox, you get it once, you're not going to get it again type thing. Um, right. But I, you know, you know a lot of people who, especially after developing some kind of severe case of Lyme disease, you know, whatever category they fall into, everybody has this fear of the outdoors afterward. Because, you know, we don't 
create enough of this, you know, memory response to be able to not get infected again. So you talked a little bit earlier about tick repellents and things that, you know, help with prevention measures and stuff. And I feel like everybody who is some kind of Lyme disease patient ends up, you know, really holding fast to those or, you know, avoiding grass or anything like that. So it's interesting to understand why that is the case, you know, where that fear comes from. Yes, yeah. It is absolutely a legitimate or a rational fear the same way we have rational fears about COVID-19 mm-hmm. or influenza. So those are two viral infections that uh, year after year you have to get vaccinated to protect yourself against them. And some of the big still not entirely answered questions about COVID-19 is if you're naturally infected with COVID-19, how long are you protected? Mm -hmm. And if you're vaccinated for COVID-19, you've never been infected with the virus SARS-CoV-2, but you've been vaccinated by Pfizer or Moderna or J&J, how long will that protection last? And that depends on how strong a memory response the initial infection or the vaccination establishes in your body. Uh, That's so interesting and really nice to connect to kind of what everybody's doing right now, (laughs) trying to figure it out, especially, you know, Lyme patients, people who have some kind of compromised immune system and are, you know, have have been bunkered down for the past year or so. So absolutely. (laughs) Um, And I know you had a fourth uh, study that you were really interested in talking about. Yes, yes. And I think that's maybe the most exciting of all of them. Uh, And that's one that um, was published just recently by Monica Embers at Tulane University. And in collaboration with Dr. Brian Fallon at Columbia University, Monica was able to find spirochetes in post-mortem brain tissue of a patient that had been treated with antibiotics for neurological Lyme disease for many years. And unfortunately, the patient ultimately died from dementia. Mm -hmm. And so these findings in a human patient really offer definitive proof that spirochetes can remain in the body of a patient even after aggressive antibiotic treatment. And so this is a strong argument for finding novel antibiotics that can kill tolerant bacteria or other alternative treatment options that don't rely on standard of care antibiotics like doxycycline. That's something that is really incredible to find. And I think something that has been controversial in the Lyme community for a long time about, you know, absolutely can it last? Can it not last? And you find a lot of doctors who maybe they don't see a lot of Lyme patients, which is totally understandable that you would expect, you know, well, you did really aggressive treatments, you know, you did IV antibiotics, things like that. You'd expect for any other disease to have kind of eradicated itself. And I think, the spirochetes are just, they seem so intuitive and almost, they're like crafty. They've figured out all kinds of different ways. And, you know, we've seen all things, you know, the different ways that they change shape and and stuff like that. And so it's, it's so interesting and and really, I think we'll move. I'm really excited to read that one as well to, you know, move the Lyme community forward in, in really positive ways. 
Yeah. Yeah. So other than obviously these four wonderful studies, what are some of the biggest challenges we're going to, I talk about testing kind of in this as well to the rapid and accurate diagnosis of Lyme and other tick-borne diseases because they all kind of go hand in hand. So one of the biggest challenges to rapid and accurate diagnosis of Lyme disease is the fact that it can take several days, if not weeks, for someone infected with Bifidorphrey to develop symptoms. So the bacteria gets into your body after a tick bite and is kind of there replicating, uh, migrating around your body even before you develop symptoms. So it's not until you go to see a doctor that uh, you may or may not be diagnosed with Lyme disease at that very early point. So it takes several days or weeks to develop symptoms, which will send you off to your doctor's office. Then it's very difficult to accurately diagnose Lyme disease because most diagnostic tests are indirect. It means that mm-hmm. you're looking for the presence of antibodies in your bloodstream that are raised against the spirochetes. Now, it takes your body several weeks to produce those antibodies. So if you develop symptoms shortly after a tick bite and go to your doctor, and the doctor looks too soon for the presence of antibodies in your blood before they're even made, well, you're not going to find them. You're going to test negative despite the fact that you might actually have Lyme disease. So a potentially more rapid and accurate test would be to look for the presence of the bacteria itself. So you don't have to wait for your immune system produced antibodies against the bacteria. You look for pieces, parts of the bacteria itself like Borrelia-specific proteins, DNA, RNA, and you can look for these pieces, parts of the bacteria in blood, urine, or other body fluids. But the challenge there is that there are so few spirochetes in the body, and they're able to hide out in tissues and other areas where there's little blood flow. So finding these pieces, parts of the spirochete uh, can really be difficult in and of itself. So these are the challenges, and this is why GLA is so focused on funding research activities to try and improve serological diagnosis, antibody-based diagnosis of Lyme disease, and also direct detection methods. Mm-hmm. So also, I know a lot of people know about kind of the inaccuracies of, of some of the the antibody tests, not, can you explain the difference between, you know, some of the inaccuracies, obviously we talked about prior to your body's ability to amount an immune response, right? but then also after, even if you've had enough time, some people still test with a false negative. Is that something that you're also looking to improve upon? Yes. So just recently, there have been important advances in the accuracy of early diagnosis of Lyme disease. Now, again, this is based on detecting antibodies in the patient's Mm -hmm. blood. But these new diagnostic tests are 
looking for more Borrelia proteins, not just one or two. And it's looking specifically for Borrelia proteins that are produced by the bacteria much earlier in the infectious disease process. So unlike the CDC two-tiered diagnostic test, the ELISA and Western blot, these new generation, these modified two-tiered tests, are actually much better at detecting early Lyme disease. In some cases, 30% better at detecting early Lyme disease. And that's important because if you think about it, 30% out of every 10 individuals that truly have Lyme disease, three of them may test false negative by the CDC two-tiered test. These new tests, can actually accurately diagnose them early. So you're catching more early Lyme disease cases. And the earlier you diagnose a patient with Lyme disease, the more likely they're going to have a positive outcome after treatment. Yes, which I think everybody would appreciate, especially those of us who, you know, either weren't tested or were tested and it came back negative, um, you know, for whatever reason that is. Um, but I think everybody's kind of seen that, you know, you, you hear a lot when, when you end up really sick with Lyme disease, a lot of people get a lot of comments from whether it be, be family members or just anybody who doesn't really understand the difference between, you know, uh, an acute case of Lyme that, you know, was caught early and treated early and your body responded pretty well to it, you know, you're in that 80% category versus the other group, it's, it's hard to understand and grasp, you know, with the, with the misunderstanding that's kind of out there that, you know, you can treat it fast, you know, you have Lyme disease, why are you, why are you bedridden? Why can't you, you know, do the things that, you know, my aunt had Lyme disease and she was fine, like, you know, so all different types of understanding about that. And I think the more we can get those quick and fast diagnostics, the the more that'll probably catch up to everybody in the category of yeah, right. I got Lyme disease and, and I was fine. Yes, yes. Well, so, and that brings up another really important point. What are you and I talking about? Diagnosis of Lyme disease. Lyme disease, Lyme disease, Lyme disease. Well, we all know that the ticks carry more than just Borrelia burgdorferi. So not mm-hmm. only can they cause Lyme disease, they can cause babesiosis, anaplasmosis, or lichiosis, a number of viral infections, Powassan virus, Heartland virus, and yet we're not testing for all of those. So even if you were to accurately diagnose someone with Lyme disease as early as possible and treat them for that, if they're infected with other tick-borne pathogens, that are not sensitive to the antibiotic you're using to treat the Lyme disease, that patient is going to continue to have symptoms, continue to suffer. So Mm -hmm. GLA is also very focused on supporting research scientists at Columbia University that are developing next-generation diagnostic tests that will look for up to eight different tick-borne diseases in a single patient sample. 
which is a really incredible. I've, I've been to Columbia and, and had, you know, uh, they, they have a second opinion service there. So yeah. I've, I've worked with them in the past. And if I look at the, the kind of binder of, of test results and, and things that I got back from them, which was incredible, it's huge because you have to test individually for every different infection and yeah. they're very thorough when they do that. And um, I think there's almost with Lyme disease. And if you, if you didn't, I think most people don't know a lot about it until it's put in front of them and then they're saying, okay, this is why you're sick. And that's right. There's not a lot of information circulating about, you know, Hey, you should make sure you're being tested for these co-infections as well. Yes, exactly. Because if you're not, you, you know, sim what you just said, you know, it's going to be a, a real problem down the line if you're not getting the right treatment for it. And so I think even, I mean, obviously increasing awareness of, of the need to test for those, but also bypassing that altogether, you know, having an, a one shot sample kind yes. of where you can look at it and say, okay, this is, this is all of it. And then you know that you've got your bases covered. That's really exciting yeah. news and something that I'm sure you all are very proud of. And, you know, obviously looking forward to it being available for others to partake in. So finally, we talked a lot about antibiotics today and how they are helpful, especially in the really acute early stages of Lyme disease. But why is there a need to find ways to treat patients with Lyme and other tick-borne diseases beyond the use of antibiotics? So this really comes back to the, the PTLDS. So uh, anywhere from 10 to 20% of patients diagnosed with Lyme disease and treated with antibiotics early on will fail to get better. So they go on to develop post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And it's not entirely clear why they develop persistent symptoms. It could be that um, they never developed a strong and protective immune response to the spirochetes. Uh, the spirochetes may develop strong tolerance to the antibiotics that are used to treat the patient or the bacteria have been killed and cleared from the patient's body, but the inflammatory damage to the tissues and the organs in that patient continue to cause disease as if the patient were still actively infected. So that's why we need to find alternatives to antibiotics to treat these patients. And really this last point uh, points out uh, another important reason GLA is so keen to fund the development of novel direct diagnostic tests. So the current tests, antibody-based tests, uh, cannot really tell the difference between active ongoing infection and prior exposure to B. burgdorferi. So when you do get a memory response, and it's not as if people don't have any memory response to Borrelia burgdorferi, it's just not strong enough, long-lasting mm -hmm. enough. But when you have an antibody response to Borrelia, those antibodies can last for a long period of time, even if you've been cured by treatment with antibiotics. So those individuals that have antibodies, they're not necessarily actively infected. So if they're not actively mm -hmm. infected with the bacteria, then there isn't a reason to continue the antibiotics. 
So the bacteria may have been eliminated from the body, but the immune system is still producing antibodies. Uh, and so it's really important for us to understand, is this an active, ongoing infection? Can you still find spirochetes? in patients that have been treated with antibiotics, and this is why Monica Ember's work was so important. That is the case in mm -hmm. some people. In other people, the bacteria may be long gone, but they've got this inflammatory damage to the tissues, and that's kind of self-perpetuating. So instead of using antibiotics, maybe what you need to use is very potent and effective anti-inflammatories to help alleviate the symptoms in those individuals that are no longer actively infected but are still suffering the consequences of having been infected months or years prior. Yeah, I think that just goes to show the complexity of Lyme and tick-borne disease because it's easy to Absolutely. say... It's easy, you know, everybody wants an answer. I think everybody kind of says this with Lyme, no one patient looks the same. You can't, and that's why trying a treatment that your friend has done is not necessarily going to work for you. And we all try and learn from each other because that's that's the best we have right now. But getting to the, you know, getting more direct tests, getting to the bottom of, of some of these and being able to tell the difference between each patient will be so beneficial to, you know, treatments in, in the future. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant point that you've made. Every patient's journey is unique. Every physician's approach to treating a patient is unique. And research scientists, you know, that do these experiments in the laboratory with test tubes, with mice, or non-human primates, we really have to appreciate the uniqueness of the patient population, the diversity of treatment options that Lyme treating physicians are using. Some of them work for some patients and not for other patients. We'd love to understand why that is the mm -hmm. case. And then really take all of that information from the patient and physician's perspective, bring it into the laboratory at the bench, do the experiments to better understand the disease, better understand the bacteria, better figure out how to more effectively treat all patients for all of their tick-borne diseases, and then move forward from there. Yeah, and then almost standardize it so we can, okay, if you're in this category, you do this. If you're in this category, you do that. And, oh, what a relief that would be for, you know, Lyme patients, because I'm sure, you know, we've got a lot of people listening and people who sent in questions, you know, which we've covered mostly and about wanting to talk to you and understand what's going on, because there's such a, a responsibility on the patient and the family to figure out and sift through all of this information while we're still at some of the nascent stages of of putting it together and, and you know, right. getting. So I, um, well, first of all, just want to thank you so much because I think this is, you know, will give people a lot of hope for where we're headed and how, you know, GLA is helping the community in ways other than, you know, patient support and education have been phenomenal. And it's something that Julie and I focus on a lot in the podcast, but bringing you on here has hopefully given such great information to people about 
you know, the directions that we're heading and, you know, what, especially just even really cutting edge new studies that have been um, released recently. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And we will catch you next time on the Too Much Lime podcast. The information in this podcast is meant to be supportive and not for medical advice. Please consult your physician before making any medical decisions. You can find a Lyme literate provider at gla.org in their find a doctor section.